0: Jotunheim, home of the Frost Giants, traditional enemies of the mighty Norse gods. Jotunheim, where winter's domain endures forever and spring is a forgotten word. Jotunheim, within whose icy wastes the only living thing is death! And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm.
1: Behold! Episode 9 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor.
0: And behold, an episode that was not part of our initial plan, but that thanks to our Indiegogo supporters hitting a stretch goal, we are doing.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Indiegogo stretch goal supporters, and Indiegogo supporters in general. We love you.
0: So we're going to be covering the Balter the Brave miniseries today, so it's not part of the Mighty Thor, but it is written by Walter Simonson and drawn by Sal Buscema, who draws a whole lot of this run, and takes place neatly in about the point of the run that we've been covering in our main coverage.
1: Yeah, like the first issue is right before Thor and everyone invades hell and the rest of it takes place shortly thereafter, right?
0: Exactly, yeah. So it's lasted pretty nicely. This seemed the uh, the most reasonable place to cover this topic. But in the meantime, Elizabeth, how's it going?
1: I'm pretty good. I had a, a fairly busy week uh, scheduling a lot of guest appearances on other podcasts. and I know you've been doing much the same. Yeah, for whatever
0: reason. I mean, I've done guest spots before, but we uh, both of us, I think, just did a whole bunch of them right in the same few week period. So let's see. We were both on comic book cover story. We were on Multiversal Q together. I think we talked about that last episode. Mm -hmm. We also each did an episode of Tighten Up the Defense, one of my very favorite podcasts.
1: Yeah, that was a complete delight. I mean, they're all enjoyable, but uh, a hub serve me whiskey. So that gets the edge. Sorry. That's that's a bonus. I mean, <laughs> we don't drink while we do this. Should we drink while we do this? I don't know. I, don't, I think it would take twice as long and we'd be twice as loud. It would probably be hard for poor Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we gave Kyle whiskey too. Kyle? I thought we were more of a mead podcast. <laughs> that's true. That's true. For that, we need Aaron Duran of another podcast, uh, Geek in the City.
0: Oh, man. It's, it's a podcasting world. So any of you who do not live in Portland, I suspect that's the majority of our listeners— It's kind of a podcasting town. I mean, it's a comics town, but it's also kind of a podcasting town. Like almost everybody you talk to is somehow involved in podcasting.
1: It is very true. There's like layer upon layer of geek communities here that are somehow surviving in Portland, despite it getting more and more expensive to actually live here. But I mean, hardship really inspires creativity, right? That's right. I mean, we've seen Balder go through so much hardship, and he's just become more and
0: more badass. So it's kind of like that, but with, you know, talking into a microphone about funny books instead of battles.
1: <laughs> and Carnilla, as well, goes through a lot of hardship, some um, in ways that kind of irked me. But uh, she emerges seemingly stronger and with a slightly different bent.
0: And a different haircut.
1: Definitely a different haircut.
0: Well, anyway, speaking of, do you want to dive into the Balder the Brave miniseries?
1: Yes, I do. So
0: the series is structured a little strangely, and Elizabeth, you alluded to this earlier. The first issue takes place before Baldur goes with Thor to hell, and issues 2, 3, and 4 take place after that. So it's almost like two separate stories.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's really common these days that with crossovers you kind of need to read all of the books. Back then I feel like that was less common. And I do feel like you would still understand, you know, if if you read this without reading Thor, although I kind of don't see why you would. I don't see Balder being more popular than Thor. But but yeah, definitely reading the Thor part or listening to our podcast enriches the uh Balder the Brave miniseries.
0: Exactly. And as a reminder, Balder is one of our main cast in Thor, of course, he's the god of light or the god of the sun, it kind of depends on who you ask. In Norse mythology, he was, he was sort of a perfect golden boy, like the gods made a deal with just everything in the world where nothing would harm Baldur, except they forgot to talk to mistletoe, and then Loki tricked a dude into shooting a mistletoe arrow at Baldur and he died, and in the Marvel comics, he got better, and we certainly saw a lot of the aftermath of that in Simonson's early run. But right now, he's been hanging out with Carnilla the Norn queen. She's always been interested in him romantically, and she convinced him that if he would stay with her and be her consort, she would help Asgard out in the various gigantic conflicts it's been involved in. So that's where this story starts, with Balder in Nornheim, an independent state within the borders of Asgard, ruled by Carnilla, a sorceress, oft-times villain, and lady of amazing, amazing headwear.
1: And that's something very important, I think, to note about this relationship, where... Balder is this being of light and always giving everyone the, the benefit of the doubt, whereas Carnilla does lean more toward the villainous with a heart of gold in some ways. In, in many ways, their relationship is an attraction of opposites and a battle of wills with each of them trying to either change the nature or the circumstances of the other.
0: Exactly. And that, I think, is what makes them uh, the most interesting. And we certainly see that on display in this series as we have throughout Simonson's entire run so far.
1: So one interesting thing about this miniseries is that it is drawn by Sal Busema, who will very shortly be taking over uh, the Thor main title as Walter Simonson just does the writing.
0: Exactly. And we've seen Sal Busema's work before. Uh, he did uh, issue number 355, where Thor goes off to the icy wastes and wrestles with his great granddad, Tiwaz of the Wastes. And uh, Sal did a great job there. And I think Selby Sama is a pretty good choice here. I mean, I will always prefer Walter Simonson to basically anyone except for maybe somebody like Bilsenkevich or Art Adams who have very different styles from Simonson. But if you're going to have a successor to Walt Simonson, you could do a hell of a lot worse than Selby Sama.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is a really solid choice. He's got this sort of dark fairy tale style art. Like he perfectly kind of depicts this world and these people. He's very good with Balder and Carnilla's faces, kind of the the face acting, as we call it these days from artists, is really spot on. And the hats.
0: Of course, and that's vital for anything involving Carnilla. Now, interestingly enough, this issue and this miniseries opens with characters who are very much not Balder and Carnilla.
1: In the deeps of time, the harvest god Frey, who has a sweet mustache and tiara with big wing blades, so already we know he's Asgardian— was into a lady named Gerd, and he asked his buddy Skirnir, who has a sweet mustache but no tiara, to woo Gerd for him.
0: And so Skernir, with a gift from his buddy for whom he's wingmanning, which is the Sword of Frey, a sword that fights on its own and makes its wielder invincible, yeah, he does indeed go off to woo Gerd, successfully, in fact. But the years go by, and the sword is stolen and vanishes into the mists of time. But the narration's quick to remind us, the mists of time in this case just mean Nornheim. The sword went to Nornheim. We don't see anything about Frey or Gerd or Skirnir again, but that sword is going to be a big deal. And this seems almost irrelevant to start it this way. I mean, do we really need an origin story for a sword that's going to feature into this? But I like it, because it starts it off as almost a fairy tale. It starts it off with this air of history and of grandeur, and that sets up the story to come quite nicely, I think.
1: Yeah, and the scene with Balder and Carnilla as we first see them is also very fairy tale like I mean, Balder is literally like feeding birds and talking to them. And you could imagine that maybe earlier they actually dressed Carnilla, which would make some sense because she does not have her hat. So I feel like this means that she and Balder, you know, have really let down all their defenses. They are really, you know, being emotionally open with each other. And I wonder, gee, I mean, have they given up the condoms too? How would Asgardian condoms even work? Well, they do talk about Carnilla's icy sheath a lot here. Maybe that's what they mean. I don't want to wear an icy sheath. That sounds horrible. (laughs) Maybe it's like um, the Frost Giants. That's like their side gig. They like make Asgardian condoms. That would have some really like George Costanza type side effects, you would think.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. It's a Jotunheim (laughs) prophylactics. It's a growing industry you should invest.
1: (laughs) Growing. (laughs) Well, anyway, I'm glad we've gotten
0: off to a great start here.
1: We're the classy podcast. That's how you know who we are.
0: (laughs) Yup. We're technically not explicit in terms of the words we don't say, but the rest of it, uh, you know, we do what we can.
1: Absolutely. And so does (laughs) Balder.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, yeah, Balder is on Carnilla's porch, basically, her her roof porch. Is there a name for that? I feel like there's a name for that. like a terrace. It's a terrace, yeah. Yeah. Talking to birds. And I I agree, it's a very Disney-like scene. You get the impression he just got done singing a song with them. But Carnilla is just super happy to be hanging out with this literal and figurative beacon of light. I mean, she's always respected and been attracted to Balder because of how pure and noble and happy and positive he is. And that's exactly what is on display here.
1: Do you know how long, brave Balder, it has been since the birds have deigned to perch atop my airy and sing their songs of love? Mayhap
0: I hold the bird seat in a friendlier manner than thee.
1: And they're challenging each
0: other, they're making fun of each other a little, but at the same time you get the strong impression that it's very affectionate, that that sort of slight, gentle antagonism is just a part of the dynamic that they both enjoy.
1: We were talking earlier about how they were kind of like a 40s film duo, you know, with this kind of sharp, you know, barbs at each other. But get the feeling that they really do love and respect each other.
0: They do. And Carnella is definitely starting to soften. I mean, we've seen her in the past as a real hard ass. I mean, she doesn't suffer fools lightly if people cross her. She is uh, ready with a quick blast of sorcery, but she seems happy and relaxed for kind of the first time.
1: And of course, this starts going to pot immediately, because Agnar the Vanir, Balder's buddy, is riding into Nornheim with a message for Balder.
0: And where this was in continuity, like we said, this is right before Baldur goes off to hell with Thor. So that indeed is the message Agnar bears for balder that Thor needs his help because only Balder has ever made his way out of hell. Carnilla gets the news of this before Balder does, though. One of her goblin demon servants tells her... And she decides, no, I'm not going to let Thor take my partner away from me, like, right after he agreed to stay here. We're happy. Balder himself is finally happy, and Thor's going to ruin that. What can I do to prevent this from occurring?
1: Well, and her other concern is that she never told Balder about Odin's disappearance, and she doesn't want Agnar to let that cat out of the bag either.
0: So, demons, or goblins, or I don't know, what are they, Elizabeth? Like, Carnella's got these servants, and they're sort of these little green dudes, which I don't know why that's the case. When Walter Simonson drew Nornheim, I don't believe we've really seen her servants be demonic.
1: Yeah, it's really strange. They are referred to as demons within the comics, because I was looking that up, too, to see how I should refer to them in my notes. And later on, we do see that she has, like, Asgardian-slash-humanoid residents, but I don't know, maybe they're some sort of, like, Refugees from another heim that were like relocated there or something. I don't know.
0: I'm not sure, but they do look pretty cool. And Salbusema draws really fun demon goblin dudes. But anyway, yeah, some of these demon goblin dudes capture Agnar. Agnar, of course, being Baldur's, I don't know, squire, retainer, something like that.
1: Apprentice, uh, unrequited love.
0: <laughs> there might be some, some between the line stuff going on there. It's true. I mean, honestly, can you blame him? Baldur's one attractive fellow, both in body and soul. It's true. But, yes, uh, Carnilla sees Agnar before her, quickly finds out what's going on, as he tells her of the message he has to deliver, and Carnilla decides, no, this can't happen, and she has a way to fix it.
1: Alas, young sir, I fear your speech is all gibberish to me. Kazap!
0: And suddenly, Agnar can't speak English, or, you know, Asgardian, or whatever it is they speak here.
1: Yeah, and she scrambled his brain, so he doesn't really remember why he's supposed to be there either. And she throws him into a deep, dark dungeon and basically says, well, keep him fed and safe, and I'll figure this out later. Exactly.
0: And Balder asks where Carnilla's been, and she tells him, oh, don't worry about it, it was just an itinerant tradesman. She talked to him, no problem. And this reminds me a little bit of the scene in the Hell arc, where Amora the Enchantress is being followed around by Scourge, seals his feet in, like, tree stumps, and when Heimdall asks who it was, she just says, hey, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, she's, like, finger-waving it away, and she's kind of mad that he knows about it at all, and it's because a bird told Balder this, and birds and Balder talking to birds is going to be a very recurrent occurrence in this arc. And in the dungeon... Agnar,
0: he starts losing track of time very quickly. He can't remember his name or his mission. He can't talk right. In fact, the first time he tries to, we get some pretty awesome gibberish.
1: Kagruger? Right! In this meg right!
0: Poor guy. But there is food, like we said. Carnell is not gonna starve Agnar. But when a rat approaches trying to get some of that, Agnar throws his
1: goblet at the rat
0: and immediately regrets it, thinking to himself.
1: And yet, mayhap I have acted too hastily, for am I not the same as they, lost, alone, a mere speechless, brutish thing? And I seem to remember another, a gentle being who called animals of every kind friend.
0: So when we first saw Agnar he wanted to kill Balder because Balder had killed his father in battle and we've seen Agnar grow to respect Balder more and more but at the same time we've seen Agnar improve as a person he's become more clever more compassionate a better warrior and Even with his brain totally scrambled, that is still there. Like, Balder is just that kind of a positive influence on everybody around him. Like, I feel like we need to get him on the internet, maybe get him on Reddit
1: or something. He'd reform every troll. It's true. It's like, Balder's generous spirit and the way he gives everyone the benefit of the doubt gives people the space to be better people. Right. So, time passes as Agnar
0: is in prison um, befriending rats. And Carnilla and Balder are having a grand old time. Carnilla hosts Balder with the finest wine and presumably the finest Carnilla. And this is where we see hat number one, because of course Carnilla has the finest headgear in all of the nine realms. This is like a golden head cage with these sort of S curved side wings and horns in front, and it holds Carnilla's hair up in a very Bride of Frankenstein sort of fashion. It's pretty great.
1: And regular listeners will probably remember that we do a Hell's Haberdashery Award at the end of every episode, Best Hat, and after a while, we had to disqualify Carnilla because she has so many amazing hats, but she even outdoes herself in this miniseries. Back in
0: the dungeons, Agnar continues to while away the days, and he's being
1: a real sweet dude to all the rats. Come, my little friends, and eat, for here we share our food and fate, huddled in the darkness.
0: And Carnilla and Balder continue their honeymoon period, riding through green, beautiful fields. And Carnilla mentions that they've been more beautiful since Balder came. Carnilla in, already, hat number two. A simple gold-green headframe with curved vertical horns. When she's out riding, she keeps it relatively basic. By which I mean far more elaborate than anybody else would wear, but restrained for Carnilla the Norn Some
1: Someday, I would like to understand how you wrap the sunshine about you and warm the very earth.
0: The sun is in the heart, m'lady. And you have always sheathed yours in the frosts of winter.
1: Then perhaps you will help me to melt the sheath and lie in the sunshine, my lord.
0: And it's flirtation, but it also does seem to be Carnilla genuinely wanting to have that positive influence that we talked about with Agnar rub off on her. Like, she wants to be the kind of person she knows she can be around Balder.
1: So I want to talk about something here that we are calling trope opera, (laughs) as in tropes that you see a lot in soap operas. And this is something that, kind of irritates me about their relationship and a lot of times in soap operas you will have the vixen and this is a somewhat villainous character who is still sympathetic or can still you know be good but maybe lies or cheats or accidentally murders someone or has a evil twin that she doesn't know about and this vixen is generally usually paired with a righteous man, which of course is what every woman is supposed to want. You know, a righteous man, what more could you want out of life? And this righteous man is generally attracted to her against his will, so he wants to be with her. But to do that, she must reform for him. And this generally sets up the conflict in their storyline, where the vixen eventually begins to lie and hide things, and the righteous man discovers it and yells at her, and Growing up watching this, I soon became very tired of this because it seemed the whole thing is predicated on people who want to be together, perhaps physically, but who do not, in their essence like who the other person is and I always want to say to the vixen lady like go off and find somebody who will really enjoy your scheming and be along with you and not someone who thinks of you as some sort of fixer-upper or damaged goods that needs to be redeemed by a righteous man and that's not exactly the dynamic between carnella and balder but occasionally it creeps in that direction and it it makes me a little irritated
0: that's fair, and that this certainly does seem to be an example of that trope. So, I mean, as somebody who's watched a lot of soap operas and who's experienced this trope a number of times, like, how do you think the Balder-Carnella relationship stacks up? Like, is it a well-done example of that or a poor example of that?
1: Well, it's funny because we talked through it. At first, I was very upset about this, and then when we talked about this prior to the episode, we kind of discovered some things, which we'll get to later, that did calm me down about it. So, I think, in general, it is a very balanced portrayal of a mature relationship, but at the same time, long term, I don't think Carnilla and Balder will ever truly work out for reasons that we will see later in this episode.
0: Yeah, I, I, I buy that, totally. So they're writing off idyllically, uh, being talked about in terms of what tropes they, uh, they inhabit unbeknownst to them, and Agnar is talking himself to a bat. He's still in prison. He still can't talk. He's made real good friends with all the animals because he's a sweet dude with some sweet facial hair. And the bat flies off and finds Balder. Now, Balder can talk to birds, and I'm assuming bats are, you know, close enough for Asgardian work. And so he follows the bat all the way across Carnilla's castle to an obscure portion with a barred window in the floor. Inside which he sees Agnar, who of course he totally remembers because Agnar is one of his best friends. It quickly becomes evident that Agnar has been imprisoned there against his will, that Agnar can't talk right, and so Baldr uses his Asgardian biceps to rip the bars out of the floor and free his friend.
1: Meanwhile, Carnilla is on her throne, you know, in her great throne room in a wonderful hat again and
0: At number three, a Scarlet Witch-style face frame with horn blades that go down the sides of her face and other huge horns that go to either side of the top of her head and additional tiny horns on her forehead, plus a big old ruby in the middle. This may be her best one in the series, or at least her best one so far.
1: Well, she really takes her royal duties seriously. You know, she has a lot of important things to work out.
0: I mean, you're not going to wear your house tiara when you go to court.
1: Certainly not. As we hear her say, Thy plea is granted, Nashna." The toad's head shall be thine, but should you fail to produce the wergeld, the toad shall feast upon thine eyes. I have questions!
0: I have questions about what's going on! So she's talking to one of her demon subjects, like, okay, we know that a bunch of them live in Nornheim, but toad's heads? Okay, so there are two things I think that can be going on here. Maybe the toads are like another sentient race that lives in Nornheim. We know there are human-type people, we know there are demons, maybe there are also toads. And so in this case, maybe Carnilla is saying, hey, you can like decapitate your toad enemies as long as you pay the wergeld, the man price, to their families. Wergeld was like a thing back in less civilized days. And that kind of makes sense. It's a weird way of ruling, but Nornheim is a harsh realm.
1: Well, you don't want the burden of all the funerals, you know, to be on the, the poor toad's families and leave them destitute.
0: Exactly. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's not a race of toad people. Maybe, like, this guy just really wants toad heads. Like, it's some kind of, I don't know, a currency, or he's he's a collector. Like, what would you do with that many toad heads? Why would you want toad heads enough to go and talk to this scary, amazingly hatted queen about the whole thing?
1: I bet he's totally, like, making jewelry or something. He's selling that stuff on Etsy. Oh, it's Nornheim Etsy.
0: Little adorable pop culture references made of toad heads.
1: But circling back, if there are toad people, do you think they would worship Frog Thor as their god? Oh man! I mean, I think they probably
0: should. I guess they wouldn't really know about Frog Thor because he was mostly in Midgard asterisk Earth. Uh, but maybe somehow across the dimensions, they just knew in their totally hearts that there is out there somewhere the Frog of Thunder fighting for the best interests of toads everywhere.
1: Dude, the birds totally told them. The birds apparently just go around gossiping to everybody in in Asgard.
0: Well, that's actually a thing in Norse mythology in general. Not the birds gossiping, but uh, Ratatosk, the squirrel who goes up and down the world tree, he, like, goes and spreads rumors between the serpent in the roots of the world tree and the eagle at the top of the world tree to, like, piss them off at each other. It's like a game of malicious telephone, as I understand (laughs) it.
1: Of course, that makes total sense.
0: But we Norsely digress. The point is, Carnilla's doing her queenly duties, and I choose to assume that Every day involves figuring out toad heads. When the door is burst off of its hinges, sending a guard flying and revealing Balder the Brave.
1: He's found that itinerant tradesman with a problem, and he is sure that the you know benevolent, wonderful Carnilla can help him.
0: Yeah, Balder knows exactly what's going on. It didn't take him long to put two and two together. He knows that Carnilla imprisoned Agnar, and he's pretty sure she did so for not the best of reasons. So he politely but firmly asks her to undo the curse on Agnar's speech.
1: And she's backed into a corner. She clears the room and bitterly kisses Agnar, restoring him, and then gives them both epic side eye, biting her lip angrily from the foreground as Agnar delivers his message.
0: I really do love that panel, though. Like, we see Agnar and Balder talking, and in the foreground, Carnilla's, like, facing the reader, and is clearly just so annoyed by this whole situation.
1: I have to say, throughout this part of the arc, Carnilla reminded me so much of Veronica Lodge from the Archies. I can totally see that. Oh, man, now I want to do like an Asgard-Archie mashup. Like,
0: like who would all the different characters be? I mean, would Thor be Archie or would that be somebody else?
1: Well, here I think Balder is Archie and Agnar is Jughead, for sure.
0: <laughs> Agnar <laughs> would have his own amazing hat. Of course. Jughead would probably win Hell's Haberdashery at least once. Of
1: cu- Yeah, he would have to.
0: Well, anyway, Balder is angry because he never heard from Carnilla about Odin dying slash being lost. But Carnilla points out... What would the point have been of her telling him?
1: To what end? T'was beyond your power to aid him in that final moment. Or mine? Better to stand in the sun than cry in the dark. And that's the thing with Carnilla. We've seen this before. She really does have Baldur's
0: best interests at heart. I mean, she wants him to be happy. She wants him to be his best self. And she knows that in the cert War... Baldur couldn't have altered the events as they occurred, and, I mean, she's probably right. I don't think Baldur would have been able to save Odin. The best-case scenario would be that Baldur survived.
1: She wants Baldur to be his best self, but still on her terms. There lies the rub.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. But anyway, Baldur reluctantly says that he will go back with Agnar to help Thor on his mission into hell to rescue the lost mortal souls. He, he likes Nornheim, he likes staying with Carnilla, but, you know, duty calls, and Thor has requested it, and... I'm not saying you can't say no to Thor. I'm just saying you should strongly consider when Thor asks you something whether saying no is the right answer.
1: <laughs> and Agnar asks why Baldr stays with Carnilla, but Baldur claims that there's more to her than Agnar can see.
0: What woman who loved a man would want to see him enter hell under any circumstances? The queen was simply prepared to do more about it than most.
1: And this is another great example of Baldur's kind of generous giving the benefit of the doubt to people. Like, he could have been the soap opera righteous man, you know, calling her names and yelling at her, but instead he just chooses to view her in the best possible light.
0: Well, Carnilla herself, even though Baldur's being rather charitable toward her actions, she's still not pleased. She is lounging on this sort of beanbag-looking bed in what may be the least practical nightgown ever and with... Hat number four. This is a purple tiara with sort of a bat cutout right at her hairline and the sharply V-angled horn blades on either side. This may be my favorite hat in the series, but its I don't know. There's just so many options. I do like the bat cutout, though. That is good design.
1: It's true. It's kind of like she could moonlight as like a Batman villain, his like nemesis. Oh, man. She does play a good nemesis, so uh, I'm down. She could give Catwoman a run for her money, I think.
0: Hell Yeah. So, Carnella ponders, because Baldur's gonna go to hell. Literally, hell. Like, where dead people go. It's gonna be horrible battles. I mean, she's heard a little bit about just how bad it was for him the first time. And she does have the Sword of Frey. An invincible sword that would make him invincible and almost unstoppable. She could give it to him. That would ensure his victory. But she's so angry. She's so angry that he would leave her for this what she sees as a fool's errand.
1: Yeah, you really see her struggle with it but she basically talks herself out of it.
0: Well, Balder and Agnar are certainly keeping busy because, as you may remember, Balder had been eating his feelings for a long time after the first time he went to hell before Simonson's run started. He's not in the best shape. He's lost some muscle mass, he's gained some weight, he's slower than he was, and if he's going to go to hell, he needs to be in his best fighting trim. And because this is a comic set in the 80s, we have our very own badass 80s training montage! Balder starts by showing Agnar how awesome dodging is. And then... Sword play. Spears and shields.
1: Throwing axes.
0: Night jogging. Jumping chasms. Not sleeping for literally a month.
1: Lifting boulders while shirtless.
0: It is so cheesy and so beautiful and... Thank you for that background music, Kyle. Uh, especially the part at the end. I mean, they're literally, like, they're super buff. They have 12 packs in their shirtless bodies. They're holding up boulders and Baldur's counting out 329, 330. Like, it's so delightfully over the top.
1: It is, like, the most over the top CrossFit you know workout ever. And I like to think that this is how Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans trained for the Avengers movies. I
0: like to think that it was exactly like this. But I gotta say, I mean, as a 30-day fitness plan that's a pretty good one like they get into phenomenal shape especially with the whole not sleeping for a month thing that's impressive um I mean it kind of reminds me of in the X-Men and New Mutants as Guardian Wars story when Karma wandered through the desert and lost like hundreds of pounds protecting a little girl if you want to get in good shape you head to Asgard. Just give it a month and you're going to be fine. You're going to be in boulder lifting prime.
1: Yeah, Baldur should totally cash in with a fitness plan and a DVD.
0: <laughs> That's his career <laughs> path after this. Yes. So now that they're buff, they armor up and they're ready to go to hell with Thor.
1: And Carnilla bids Balder a bitter farewell, and just to set up the scene, they are down on the ground getting ready to leave, and she is up high in a balcony, and they've got their guards around them, so they're saying goodbye in public, and Carnilla is really upset. And to show how upset she is, she's wearing hat number five,
0: which is sort of a golden crown with like 50s car-style seven-shaped fins going up
1: and then to the back of her head. It's pretty great. She's definitely wearing her best F.U. hat and dress, but Balder says,
0: You would love me less if I did not ride with Thor to a splendid doom.
1: And I shall love you not at all when you fail to return.
0: And a goblin seeing his mistress betrayed attacks Balder as a traitor. Balder, of course, dodges. He's very good at dodging, especially after training for a month with no sleep, but asks Carnilla not to kill the goblin, saying the goblin was just acting in her best interests. And once Baldr leaves, Carnilla, going against his wishes, sorcery blasts the hell out of the demon in question.
1: And then she watches off her balcony
0: until night falls. And in between this moment and when the next issue, number two, starts, Baldr does indeed go to hell with Thor and the Anhariar, retrieve the various souls, witness the battle between Thor and Hela and the Executioner's last stand, and then, as promised, comes back to Nornheim.
1: But when we open on Carnilla, she is in this shame spiral, worrying, lounging in her finest headgear.
0: Uh, That would be hat number six, which is sort of a green spider-shaped face frame with like a golden ornament in the center. It's pretty good. I mean, I like the fact that it looks like a giant black widow, but I'm just saying it's not as good as the screw you balder hat she was wearing before. She also has a cute little creature rubbing against her finger. It's a nice little touch. I mean, she's just annoyed with her hand hanging off the bed, and it's just, uh, it looks so pleased with itself as it rubs the side of its face
1: against her hand. I don't even know if she notices, but it reminds me of my cat, or any cat. And she's annoyed, but she's also just consumed with worry, either that Balder was killed in hell, or that he decided not to come back to her. "'Oh, Carnilla, foolish queen, what boots pride when the one thing you love in all the nine worlds has gone into a place so evil!' "...without even a touch from you to say, come back to me. Surely there is no greater fool than a fool in love."
0: And the birds, still there from Baldur's tenure, sing all around her, just reminding her even more of the person that she's lost.
1: And in a not-so-sweet aside, it appears that she has removed the tongue from the demon who is guarding her.
0: Well, Carnilla's not always a nice lady. But suddenly, a rider appears in the distance, and she recognizes that impressive helmet... It's Balder! She runs down to meet him! She's
1: overjoyed! And she orders her guards to open up her gates and open the ramparts, and she runs downstairs and throws herself in his arms for a passionate kiss, but... His arms wrap around her over and over like Mr. Fantastic style. It's kind
0: of horrifying because he's, you know, cutting off her air and clearly this isn't the man she thought he was, but it's also a little comical.
1: It is pretty funny, but Carnilla passes out and suddenly the frost giants appear. Their Trojan balder has worked and they are inside her castle.
0: Carnilla's demons do their best to fight them off. There's one goblin in particular who charges forward valiantly. Raddy warriors, and let the cumbersome foes of Norn Realm feel the wrath of Carnilla's finest warriors!
1: But he's bested by a swordsman named Hagen.
0: Hagen, like okay, I can't not think Hagen does. I mean I understand different cultures have different names, but I'm just saying, it's a hot day. I'm thinking about ice cream. Here's a dude named Hagen.
1: He's a frost giant, right? I mean maybe he's made of ice cream.
0: Oh, I mean, I don't think anybody like licks him in this storyline, but maybe somebody should, just just to find out. <laughs>
1: More demons rally, but Utgard-Loki, ruler of the Frost Giants, turns them and all of Carnilla's subjects into stone with his magic dust.
0: Okay, so... Utgard-Loki, that name sounds kind of familiar, right? Like, we would assume that this is a version of Loki, or in some way related to Loki, familially, or conceptually. Yeah, yeah, not not actually so much. Utgard-Loki is a figure from Norse mythology, and there are different versions of what his deal is. But the story about Utgard-Loki that I first knew, that I think, like, my father told me as a bedtime story when I was a kid, uh, we have some, some Finnish in our background, so some of that stuff made it through from that region— is that at one point, Thor and Loki, who in Norse mythology, they're often companions, and a couple of their servants were on a mission looking for a bad guy sorcerer named Utgard-Loki, and they needed a place to stay for the night. And they found this castle, and the guy that ran it said, ''Okay, you can stay here, but you've got to defeat my friends, my servants, in these various challenges.'' And Thor and Loki figure, ''Hey, we're pretty awesome, so are our servants, this should be no problem.'' but it doesn't go well. So Loki has an eating contest with one of this dude's servants, figuring that, hey, he's really awesome at eating because he's really awesome at a lot of things, but the other servant wins. And one of their servants, who's very fast, has a foot race with a local servant, and he loses to that. Thor has a few challenges of his own. He has to lift up a cat, he has to drink a goblet dry, and he has to wrestle an old woman. And despite how easy these tasks should be, he doesn't quite succeed at any of them. Turns out, the guy that runs this place is in fact himself Utgard-Loki, a powerful sorcerer and illusionist giant. The person that won the eating contest? Yeah, that was actually the concept of fire, which consumes everything. The person who won the foot race? That was thought, which moves instantaneously. The cat Thor was trying to lift? That was really the world serpent, Jormungandr itself. The goblet Thor had to drain was really the ocean. Although, side note, the fact that Thor drank so much of it is why we have tides, apparently, which is pretty awesome.
1: Well, hey, we got something out of the deal.
0: And the old woman was the concept of old age. It's just a silly, weird little story, but yes, that's what I know of Utgard-Loki, who is in no way related to Loki, Thor's stepbrother, the god of lies, etc., except that they have a similar name.
1: Well, Utgard-Loki is in charge here, and his plan succeeds at a shocking rate. I mean, within a minute, Carnilla is immobilized, her entire kingdom is turned into stone, and Utgard-Loki orders his men to ransack Carnilla's castle for the object of power, he senses, which we know is the Sword of Frey, and they do find it.
0: And remember, Carnilla was considering giving this sword to Baldr. If she'd done so, it wouldn't be here right now, and it wouldn't be in the hands of the Frost Giants, who, having heard that Odin's been defeated are preparing to destroy Asgard, that's why they're attacking Nornrealm right here, because that's a potential
1: ally of Asgard. They want to weaken Asgard as much as possible before they make their big move. But also, if Carnilla had given Balder the sword, she may not be unconscious right now. And the false Balder shears Carnilla's hair off, shackles her wrists and mouth, and the Frost Giants take their captive back to Jotunheim. And
0: it's not long before they arrive at a gigantic palace made of ice, and Utgard-Loki turns villainously to his prisoner and says, Welcome to your new home, Carnilla. So that's no good for her, and I gotta say, seeing her like this, seeing her not only with her hair cut off, with her dress all torn up, with shackles around her mouth and her hands, but she doesn't even have a badass hat right now.
1: I know, like, it is... Very ironic that Carnilla, who's always been a very powerful, guarded individual, who was just talking about being a fool for love, was indeed a fool for love. She would never rashly have ordered them to open the gates if she hadn't thought it was Balder, and that was her downfall.
0: Exactly. Well, soon after, Agnar and a wounded, heartsick balder you remember he saw his ex-nana in hell—returned to Nornheim— They've survived hell, but Baldur's sort of trauma has, has returned, he's, he's low once again. As they get into Nornheim though, this is not the Nornheim they remember, the crops have all withered and died, and out there in the fields, out on the roads, it's all the subjects of Nornheim as statues, they've all been turned to stone all across the realm by Utgard-Loki's magic.
1: Next, they head to Carnilla's castle, and while Agnar wonders if perhaps Carnilla turned everyone to stone, Baldr says she does protect her own. I mean, besides removing tongues and such.
0: Agnar wonders if they'll ever know what happened,
1: and Baldr says that Agnar must practice seeing more. One of the songbirds, I told you this was going to be a theme, begins to speak to Baldr, saying that it was the frost giants.
0: Agnar's not so sure about this, but as Whiteface the Eagle appears to help out, Agnar finds a subtle clue.
1: By the eye of Father Odin, it is the evidence I seek, hidden in this side of the courtyard.
0: Okay, so the evidence that's hidden in the courtyard is a giant, goddamn frost giant axe. Yeah, keep practicing, Agnar. He's gonna get much better faster. For right now, I mean, he still
1: found a clue, even if it was a somewhat obvious clue. Meanwhile, Baldr finds Carnilla's hair and deduces that she was taken as a slave. Agnar notes that Carnilla needs help, but wouldn't they be better off without her? Baldr replies,
0: Though you may not approve of her, Carnilla came to Asgard's aid against the forces of Surtr, and I would not refuse succor to anyone in need. Your first impulse was the true one, Agnar.
1: So they leave for Jotunheim with Whiteface as a guide.
0: And speaking of Jotunheim, in Utgard-Loki's fortress, Carnilla is in rags, still bound, scouring the floor of the fortress.
1: Laugh now, you clods of little imagination. Someday, Carnilla will be free of these shackles. And when that day comes, her heart shall be as hard as these stones.
0: So Carnilla, psychologically, is by no means broken, even if she's being demeaned in a number of ways at
1: once. And this brings me to my next trope opera. Again, this is a typical trope from a soap opera, Rape as Redemption. Now, Carnilla is not physically raped, as far as we know, in this, uh, in this miniseries. But it's kind of disturbing how completely her agency is taken away from her. Her entire kingdom, poof, in a puff of dust. She's literally shackled. Her wrists are shackled. Her mouth is shackled. And she has lost everything. Everything. And while I know Carnilla has always been a semi-villainous character, this really seems an extreme form of character growth to me.
0: Yeah, and I do appreciate that, I mean, psychologically, she remains pretty much unbroken for the entire series. I I think that's, that's huge, and that's the reason that this works a hell of a lot better than it could.
1: Absolutely. It'd be so much worse if she were cowering or crying or anything like that. She's still Carnilla underneath it all.
0: Yep, she's still all about swearing vengeance whenever possible, and I respect that in the character. <laughs> Me too. So Baldur and Agnar are on their way to find out what happened, to rescue Carnilla, to see what the frost giants are up to, and they come suddenly to the edge of a cliff. It looks like the path is just gone.
1: But Whiteface knows it's an illusion, and Baldur follows him, you know, on his horse, right off a cliff. Agnar
0: is not so sure about this. I mean, he recognizes that there's magic afoot, clearly, and that Whiteface the eagle knows about such things. But he's not about to just ride out into air. I mean, he's seen Looney Tunes cartoons. That doesn't work out.
1: (laughs) So he chooses another, safer path and loses his horse and almost his life. And he's frustrated. He wants to fight things he can see, not
0: illusions.
1: Illusions! But Baldur encourages him to follow him through a seemingly solid cliff, and after a pause, Agnar joins him.
0: And then apologizes to Whiteface the eagle, asking the eagle to forgive him for doubting him.
1: I do not think I was meant to be brave. Perhaps I should return home to Vanaheim and become a tailor.
0: Have I mentioned recently how much I love Agnara Vanaheim? I mean, he gets his mind scrambled, and he still makes friends with rats and is super nice and shares his food— He learns to find subtle clues in a way that is sort of endearingly bumbling, and here he's being all self-deprecating and humorous and not bitter about having to deal with this world of sorcery and delusion. Like, he's just a good everyman kind of guy. Admittedly, an everyman who got shirtless and lifted a boulder 330 times, but still.
1: Yeah, I really love how the kind of mentor-apprenticeship relationship between Balder and Agnar is here. It seems really appropriate for who they are, and where sometimes, you know, Baldur's seems to me to be a little judgmental or condescending of Carnilla, within the context of a romantic relationship, I feel it really works in this friendship between Baldur and Agnar.
0: I agree. Well, speaking of Carnilla, after a hard day's work she is rewarded, Utgard-Loki frees her, and turns her into a bird. A bird with clipped wings.
1: Yeah, she tries to escape, and cannot, and Utgard-Loki says, Well, since you insist on remaining here in Jotunheim, little dove... We had best give you a safe place to rest, lest my clumsy brothers step on you there, upon the floor.
0: And he puts her in a cage raised high above the floor.
1: Out there I sense the presence of something good, something noble, something that does not belong in Jotunheim.
0: I really enjoy here that Utgard-Loki is just a villain. He's like, all right... I'm the bad guy, and so good things therefore are my enemy. Like, it's not that thing where the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants eventually renamed themselves the Brotherhood of Mutants, no. Utgard-Loki is gonna own the fact that he's evil, he's a bad guy, he enjoys villainy and anything otherwise, he has no patience for and wants to kill.
1: He knows who he is and what he wants, and he's okay with it.
0: He's living his truth.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, Baldur and Agnar are making camp near the fortress when they hear something.
0: It's the demon that Balder saved from Carnilla, Rat Tusk, the one that attacked Balder and then he begged Carnilla not to kill. It looks like he survived and followed Carnilla to Jotunheim and now he's found Balder and Agnar and he tells them he's found
1: a way into the castle and wants to show Balder, but only Balder.
0: Agnar, of course, is suspicious, but Balder knows hey, this is the only way and agrees to follow Rat Tusk, asking Agnar to stay behind. Agnar quickly falls asleep and is awakened again by Balder. However, this ain't Balder. It's clear to Agnar by Balder's words, and also by the way the birds do and don't interact with him, that this guy's gotta be a fake. And Agnar, just in time, evades the treacherous attack of this fake Balder because he got dodging lessons. Because Balder's real good at dodging.
1: The two fight, but the birds attack Balder's eyes, and Agnar slays him.
0: And it turns out this was a shapeshifter who quickly turns into a weird green form that kind of reminded me of the monster from the Doctor Who serial City of Death that Douglas Adams wrote. Did you ever see that one?
1: That actually does ring a bell.
0: Yeah, his face looked kind of like green spaghetti.
1: He also reminds me of one of the guys from TechNet. I can't remember his name. Uh, TechNet had that green guy with the big googly eyes. Numbers. His name Numbers. was Numbers. Yes, he reminded me of him.
0: Totally. But Agnar realizes, okay, if that was a fake balder, then... My suspicions were correct, the real Balder has to actually be in trouble. And he rushes forward, only to find a familiar cape and boots and horned helm. Face down in a pool of blood, Balder the Brave has been slain.
1: And the outro copy says it all. Next, Balder A, the blasted?
0: B, the bludgeoned? C, the bloody? D, the buried?
1: E, the bygone?
0: Check one and don't miss the answer in the next exciting installment of... Balder the Brave! On sale eventually.
1: And that brings us to Balder the Brave 3, Balder the Warrior.
0: And I love this opening text so much that we already said it at the very beginning, Elizabeth.
1: Jotunheim, home of the frost giants, traditional enemies of the mighty Norse gods. Jotunheim, where winter's domain endures forever and spring is a forgotten word. Jotunheim, within whose icy wastes the only living thing... Is death. I mean, I don't know how death could be the
0: only living thing, but I'm not too concerned about logic when something sounds that badass.
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome.
0: So Agnar is still over Baldur's body and he swears upon the eye of Odin, he will avenge Balder. And then realizes, wait, that ain't Baldur, because as he turns over the body he sees Rat Tusk, dressed in Baldur's armor. What the hell?
1: And Agnar has been learning how to see more with his eyes very rapidly because he turns and looks at the footsteps and tracks in front of him and figures out a whole flashback. This is impressive. I mean, from barely noticing a giant axe in
0: the corner to being able to perfectly reproduce conversations that happened earlier that day just from looking at footprints. Agnar's a damn quick study. I don't know how they teach people in Vanaheim, but I'm impressed.
1: But we see Ratusk leading Balder to a shadowy secret passage into the castle.
0: Baldur ain't no dummy, he draws a dagger threateningly, but his words remain like honey. The defile before us is deeply shadowed, and I, who fear nothing else, am afraid of the dark. But you, Ratusk, surely you are shivering only from the cold.
1: And he puts his helmet, cape, and leg warmers on Ratusk and asks him to go ahead, since Baldur is so afraid.
0: Tusk clearly knows he's screwed, and as he runs forward with Baldur's knife behind him, just yells out,
1: It's I! It's I! Tusk,
0: it is! Do not!
1: Clump! Soak. The giants realize their mistake quickly, but can't find Baldur, because he's clinging to one of their boots as they go into the castle. The old, keep your friends close and your giant enemies closer, wins Balder a ticket into the fortress. So Agnar, having successfully
0: reproduced this deception dialogue and sound effects set, uh, just by looking at footprints, uh, well, he realizes that okay, Balder's going to be in the castle, and Balder's
1: probably going to be in trouble, and
0: he goes off to
1: help. But meanwhile, inside Balder ponders he needs to warn Asgard about the pending invasion, even if it means leaving Carnilla behind making the hard choices, dude. So
0: he makes a compromise. He's only going to allow himself a few minutes to look for Carnilla and gain a little bit more info, and then he's off to Asgard to let them know about the pending ice giant apocalypse.
1: I gotta say, sometimes Balder's better nature is super cold. I feel like, ultimately, he's an aspirational yet emotionally unavailable boyfriend. You know, like a musician or a skateboarder.
0: That is a beautiful mental image that was just conjured by the combination of those concepts and Balder the Brave.
1: But... In the frigid castle, he sees a bird, which we know is Carnilla, in a cage and frees it.
0: Would that I could find Carnilla as easily. Kind of ironic. It's kind of some Alanis Morissette stuff going on right here.
1: (laughs) It's like, good thing Balder is so obsessed with freaking birds. And
0: he can't talk to this bird strangely enough. Normally he can speak avian very easily, so that's kind of weird. But, you know, the bird's freezing to death in this horrible icy castle, so he takes the bird with himself.
1: But even with him holding the bird, it's dying from the cold until Baldur begins radiating light and heat.
0: Never before have I felt so strong, so certain of my own prowess. Surely this is some after effect of the training program I undertook with Agnar when we first decided to follow Thor into hell.
1: And I really hoped that this was an instance of Carnilla as a bird somehow adapting and helping Balder and being part of her own rescue, but alas, that was not the case.
0: No, it's, I suppose, just another side effect of shirtless boulder lifting. That's right, lift a boulder 330 times without a shirt, you too can glow as brightly as the sun.
1: <laughs> just three easy payments of ninety nine ninety nine. So that tears it. He is totally going to take the time to find Carnilla.
0: Must I measure the lives of my best companions in my country against the life of the woman I love? I who have lost one love already to the icy grip of death.
1: So I love that he's having this heartfelt, emotional conversation with a bird. I mean, it's really Carnilla, but he doesn't know that. Most of his best friends
0: are birds. I mean, (laughs) I would say, like, his best friends are Thor and also birds. And Agnar, Maybe (laughs) Agnar. I think he thinks that Thor and Agnar are birds.
1: Maybe so. I mean, Thor flies. There we go. He's got wings on his head.
0: And Agnar, Well, he's great, too.
1: <laughs> Maybe he eats like a bird.
0: <laughs> Could be. I'm just imagining him as one of those, like, drinky bird things that sort of, like, bends down over and over as one of those semi-perpetual motion machines.
1: Sure. Except from
0: Vanaheim, and yes. with sweet facial hair.
1: Definitely sweet facial hair. But Ukar Loki is concerned. Something is rotten in the state of Jotunheim.
0: He's read his Hamlet, clearly. And so he goes off to investigate with a couple of giants and detects... Warmth? Here, in the
1: castle of Utgard-Loki in Jotunheim? That's not okay. Attend me, and move as silently as though you had the grace of fairies, or risk my displeasure. Something there is here that does not love the Frost Giants.
0: So, is Utgard-Loki the leader mainly because he's so well-spoken? Like, he's got some Shakespeare references, he's kind of poetic in his manner of speech, like, way more than the other Frost Giants. I kind of wonder, is- Is he just lonely here? I mean, he doesn't really have any peers. Nobody has a beard as awesome as him. Nobody's as intelligent as he is. Nobody has all his cool magic
1: powders the way he does. Well, we were talking earlier that maybe he had an ulterior motive for kidnapping Carnilla. I mean, maybe he just needed someone he had some common ground with who he could kind of talk at while he imprisons her.
0: I mean, I'm not saying kidnapping somebody and enslaving them is by any means ethical, but looking at it through that lens, at least it's a little bit sympathetic,
1: right? Sure. But Ugard loki ambushes Baldr, and Carnilla flies at Ugard lokis face to try to help Baldr escape.
0: Doesn't work out so well, because Utgard-Loki is fast and catches the bird, and Baldr's horrified. Somebody's gonna kill a bird? That's not okay!
1: His face in this panel is almost hilarious. He's like, sure, he turned all of Nornheim into stone statues, but no! Not a bird!
0: Indeed, it is not a bird, because Utgard-Loki turns the bird back into Carnilla, and Baldr quickly realizes what the situation is, and that Utgard-Loki is holding his love in the palm of his hand and could crush her at any moment.
1: And Utgard-Loki commands Baldr to come to
0: the Great Hall. Agnar, in the meantime, is still trying to find a way in to help his buddy. I mean, it's not really easy to get into a giant-sized castle in general, and one that has decent security and is made of ice, which is, you know, slippery, that's even harder. However, white-faced the eagle is here and leads him down a treacherous path.
1: And Agnar bemoans the fact that he can't speak fluent avian. When he gets home, he's totally going to learn it. And I love that he says, I've always hated charades. Because I, too, have always hated charades.
0: Do you too want to learn to speak fluent avian?
1: Now that I know it's a possibility, you know, that seems to be useful.
0: It seems really handy for Baldr, anyway. So, Agnar's on his way, and Balder and Carnilla are both prisoners of Utgard-Loki... And quickly find themselves in an arena. And out comes Hagen himself, our tasty, possibly ice-cream-composed frost giant, wielding the Sword of Frey, which Baldur immediately recognizes because everybody's heard the legends of the Sword of Frey.
1: So they begin to fight, and Baldur says,
0: Hagen moves with the grace and skill of a born swordsman. Even without the Sword of Frey, there would be no weakness in his defense. Without doubt, my lifespan can only be measured in seconds!
1: And Balder is clearly losing, so he makes the only logical choice. He runs away and rips off his shirt. I mean, we've learned a lot about the power of not wearing a shirt.
0: But in this case, it's because he's going to ball up the metal studded garment and throw it in Hagen's face, distracting him as he throws his own sword under the Sword of Frey, which immediately strikes it since it fights on its own. And Baldur charges in and grapples Hagen, who for a frost giant's pretty small, so it's not that hard to do. So they grapple, and they seem evenly matched. I mean, Hagen's lost the Sword of Frey, Baldur's lost his shirt, which is clearly no problem for him, but Hagen is gradually winning until Baldur turns his hands as hot as the sun and burns
1: almost through one of Hagen's arms. And then Baldur knocks Hagen the F out and grabs the Sword of Frey.
0: And with that cliffhanger, run issue number four, Baldur the Beautiful, and we start right in the thick of the action. Baldur's standing over a fallen Hagen, Throwing the sword of Frey up to Agnar, who's on the windowsill,
1: and the Frost Giants order Agnar to throw down the weapon, or they'll kill Carnilla. But Agnar says, "But the life of Carnilla means nothing to Agnar of Vanaheim." Farewell, Balder. Thanks for the gift, and he
0: escapes. I mean, we know that Agnar doesn't like Carnilla, but this is out of character, even given that fact. So it seems pretty clear right here. Agnar figures Balder's got to have some kind of plan, throwing the sword up there, and he's doing his best just to play along.
1: Yeah, he is trying to get better at reading situations and people, and he guessed right here, frankly.
0: Because Utgard-Loki does not, in fact, kill Carnilla. He wants to keep her alive as leverage over Baldr, who he orders the
1: giants to send back into the dungeons. However, he realizes that Asgard won't surrender to him, even with Baldr as a hostage, and Baldr, frankly, is too dangerous to keep around as a prisoner, so it's time to kill him.
0: So Tighten Up the Defense has this uh, award it does in all of its defenders' issues called the i just got to be a Sucker" Award for characters who act out of character for the sake of the plot, and I feel like here, Utgard-Loki might win it. Don't kill Carnilla because we need to keep Baldur alive! Wait, on second thought, kill Baldur!
1: But you know, we were speculating earlier that Utgard-Loki actually wanted to keep Carnilla around as someone to talk to, who was kind of his equal, so maybe he's just finding more excuses to keep Carnilla alive.
0: That's possible, yeah. Well... Utgard Loki doesn't want to keep alive Agnar of Vanaheim, so he orders his giants to go seek out Agnar and not kill him, because Agnar's got the Sword of Frey, he's undefeatable, but just keep him occupied until the spells that will keep Agnar wandering in the waste and until the cold that Utgard Loki is increasing just freeze Agnar to death. Which is
1: very smart.
0: Utgard Loki's a smart dude. Again, he's uh, not in the best company usually, so I'm-, I'm glad he's got a person he kidnapped and ruined her life to talk to.
1: And we do indeed see that Agnar is attempting to return to Asgard to warn them, but it's freezing and all the roads are leading him right back to the fortress.
0: Thankfully, Whiteface the Eagle, who is really good at finding hidden paths, is right there. And this time Agnar decides, all right, even if it looks like physics will be my foe if I walk off this cliff like Whiteface is encouraging me to do, I'm gonna do it. I trust Baldur, and Baldur trusts basically every bird ever.
1: So back at the fortress, we see that Utgard-Loki has made the classic villain mistake and is showing Carnilla the secrets of giant magic.
0: And I do love this, as he just totally villain-splains
1: his plan to her, and villain-splains how all his magic works. So you see, Carnilla, the merest addition of shredded ram's bladder completes the universal solvent. It's like Utgard-Loki, the science g- go-key. But he's making the weather ever colder. Soon it will be so icy that a warm blooded creature will perish while the frost giants only grow stronger. I dare say that even Balder in his cell below will feel the sting of the cold for all of his vaunted warmth, and Agnar's frozen body shall be found beside the Sword of Frey.
0: And speaking of Balder, the giants do indeed throw him into an icy prison, saying maybe they'll send him a blanket if they don't forget.
1: And Balder muses.
0: My hands are so cold I can hardly move them. And somehow, I doubt the giants will remember to bring me a blanket. You think? More giants indeed creep in, because the first giants were of course sent to imprison Balder, and the second set of giants were sent to kill him. And he's not there. He has burned a almost perfectly circular hole through not only his chains, but the
1: wall itself. And this is where the action really kicks into gear. Balder busts into a Loki's magic laboratory, saying...
0: "'Tis the prisoner, Utgard-Loki! Balder hath escaped both his cell and thy assassins!"
1: Balder smashes things and starts a fire, and then frees Carnilla from her glass bottle.
0: I do really enjoy that Utgard-Loki just keeps Carnilla in, like, a beer bottle.
1: Yeah, it's like his version of, like, a genie.
0: (laughs) So Utgard-Loki uses his Hail Mary that he's used a couple times before. He throws his magic turn-you-to-stone dust directly at our heroes!
1: But Baldr burns so hot, he ignites it all, and the heat is unbearable to the giants.
0: Yeah, Baldur's ability to warm Carnilla when she was in her bird form, it's gotten even more powerful because right now, it has to. It's like how mutant powers manifest in times of great stress. If even a speck of this dust touches Baldr or Carnilla, they'll be turned to stone for, presumably, forever. They are done. Asgard may never know if Aknar doesn't make it. It's gonna be bad times all around. What's interesting here is that not only is the dust all burned into nothingness by Baldur's heat and light, but the giants themselves begin to almost melt. They begin to shrink. And I don't know if this makes any sense. I mean, the giants are just like people, albeit big people, but it is pretty sweet.
1: Well, Baldur takes a stab at explaining it, saying,
0: "...they're like the land itself, creatures of sleety blood and frozen hates. They cannot stand the sun so close."
1: And Balder and Carnilla now loom over the tiny, fleeing giants.
0: And now, my brave little giants, the shoe is on the other foot.
1: And Balder lets the giants go and frees Carnilla from her shackles,
0: finally. She is not pleased. Like we said, her will was never once broken, and her desire for vengeance is basically a core character trait.
1: Free at last! Run, Ottgard Loki! Run, you cur! But no matter how far you go, Nowhere shall be far enough that I shall not find you and make you pay for the indignities I have suffered.
0: Carnilla, please, my love, let them go.
1: Because why should Carnilla take her rightful vengeance when she's finally free, when there's a dude there to tell her how she should feel and act?
0: Ah, seriously. I mean, it's in character for Balder. He doesn't believe in, you know, murdering a lot of people generally.
1: It's just been so frustrating that Carnilla is just a... A literally silenced damsel in distress, this whole adventure, misadventure.
0: I completely agree. I do wish she'd had a little bit more part in their escape and the defeat of the giants. That would have been
1: better, I think. Definitely. So they wrap up in furs and prepare to leave for Asgard when they come upon Rat Tusk's body.
0: Rat Tusk, of course, being the goblin that Carnilla smote with sorcery early on, and who then tried to lead Balder into an ambush and was crushed by giant axes.
1: But Balder believes that she spared him on his request, or so he is behaving as though he believes that, and he says that her faith in Rattusk was rewarded as she deserved. Now, this is
0: weird because, Elizabeth, you and I both read this wrong the first time we read it. We both read it as Balder just straight up lying and saying, oh, no, he uh, totally helped us out because you spared him, and he's actually a great dude and he died defending us. But that's not what happened.
1: Yeah, when we went back to read it over again, everything he said was technically true. You know, that Rat Tusk survived and followed Carnilla to Jotunheim, which he did, probably because he was in league with the giants, but that is something that Balder left unsaid. And then he died in Balder's
0: place, which implies he was protecting Balder. In fact, it's just that the deception didn't work out. And... Initially, this really bothered me when I thought that Balder was just outright lying to Carnilla to manipulate her into thinking that human nature, or I guess demon nature, was better. I mean, Balder is the dude that's honest enough that Scourge the Executioner was willing to hit his girlfriend with an axe in the face just because of something Balder said, because he knew how honest Balder was. That would have been a horrible turnabout, and show a great deal of disrespect for Carnilla. Now, maybe it still does, because Balder clearly is being vague enough in his words that he's letting Carnilla assume what he wants her to assume... But for me, it does help a lot that he's not lying to her, that he's letting her nature, which has improved, which now has a little bit more faith in the goodness of living creatures, come up with a story of what must have happened.
1: Because this story does affect Carnilla deeply, she begs Balder to please bury Ratusk and not leave him to the animals. Yeah, so here we see Carnilla honestly at
0: the most compassionate she's probably ever been even if it's for a creature that maybe doesn't deserve that compassion.
1: And again, it ties back into the overall theme that Baldur does give everyone the benefit of the doubt. He portrays them in the best possible light. And even though it seemed a bit shady here, it does leave people the room to actually become those better people. You know, like people rise to their expectations.
0: And so, after burying Rat Tusk, Balder and Carnilla continue on their way. But a person also continuing on his way is Agnar, who has finally, finally made it to Carnilla's castle in Nornheim, where he finds Hogan the Grim, one of the Warriors Three, waiting for him.
1: And Hogan, who of course first noticed Agnar when he was a callow youth trying to challenge Balder, he sees Agnar and realizes that he has grown and matured, and of course he also recognizes the Sword of Frey.
0: So, Agnar quickly fills Hogan in on what's up, there are these frost giants, they did some bad stuff, and now
1: they're gonna be attacking Asgard, and we have got to warn them, like, right away, dude! And Hogan, on his part, reveals that Baldur has been declared the new lord of the Golden Realm. Right,
0: because after the whole Frog-Thor thing, of course, Thor nominated Baldur to become the new king of Asgard, and everybody agreed.
1: So, they leave a note to that effect in Carnilla's door, as in they stab it there with a knife. Hogan's got a lot of knives. And they depart for Asgard. Baldur and
0: Carnilla continue on their way, making camp during the long journey, still talking about the fact that Baldur urged Carnilla to let the giants go, and that's what they did.
1: I still wonder what kind of love for me you bear that holds your hand from striking at my enemies.
0: Have you not considered, Carnilla, that sometimes there is more cruelty and kindness?
1: And it's true that the giants will have to live with their humiliation and defeat as laughingstocks.
0: Carnilla recognizes that that's true.
1: I sometimes wonder, Balder, which of us is the crueler?
0: They speak again of Tusk because Tusk's death has clearly influenced Carnella a great deal. Balder wonders aloud to Carnella if Tusk would have sacrificed himself for her if she had punished him the way she wanted to, and in fact actually did.
1: Yeah, and again, this is where Balder is kind of crossing the line, because Balder does in fact know that Tusk did not sacrifice himself for Carnella but Carnella admits that she will always remember her demon. She had just never before seen one of them perform an act of loyalty.
0: She's really starting to change the way she looks at everything.
1: Perhaps you are right, and love is a greater weapon than fear. And this is a cool panel here. Carnilla's face is literally divided in two by the firelight. You can see her wrestling with her two sides.
0: One of the things I like most about comics is the way you can do visual metaphor like that in a way that I don't think you can do nearly as well in any other medium. And Sal is quite good at it.
1: But Balder replies,
0: Perhaps love is not a weapon.
1: Carnilla says she is a queen without a kingdom, but Balder encourages her to figure out how to save her people with him by her side. As
0: they owe their allegiance to their queen, does not their queen owe her allegiance to them?
1: And they return to Carnela's castle, where she notices Hogan's note. And she debates what to do. She is furious because she's
0: just gotten Balder back after hell. And now, now that she reads the note, she realizes he's going to be called away again, this time probably forever.
1: Unbelievable. Balder hath been chosen ruler of Asgard, and this note bids him return to the Golden Realm at once? No! I'll not stand for it!
0: But as she wrestles with what the right thing to do is, she eventually does decide to tell Balder to give the note to Balder, saying that they're both trapped by their obligations. He can't stay, and she can't leave, and this is such a huge moment of character growth for Carnilla. I mean, she didn't tell Balder that Odin was dead, this huge thing that he would absolutely want to know because she wanted to keep him, and here, something that's going to pull him away even more and probably forever, she decides to let him know. She decides to, with her own words and her relationship with Balder the Brave.
1: And she gives him her ring to remember her by, and a kiss, and says, Now go, my love. Before I forget, I am a queen, and not a woman.
0: And this is a hell of a kiss. It's an entire page spread, and B'summer really just shows the passion, and the regret, and the longing already beginning to build between the two of them who are going to be so soon separated. I really like the way this works out here.
1: And the ending narration is amazing.
0: Save the hoofbeats of Baldur's steed, there is no sound at all in Nornrealm, as Baldur the Brave rides forth into the day to assume the mantle of liege lord of the golden realm of Asgard. And at night, the only sound is that of the rain softly falling within Carnilla's chambers.
1: Boo. I just feel so bad for Carnilla. I mean, she's all alone. Yes, she's had some personal growth and a spiffy new haircut, but all of her minions are stone. Her boyfriend is gone, and she's sitting alone in the rain. Yeah, I mean, I guess she's just gonna spend her
0: days from now on trying to figure out the right giant magic that she learned from utgard Loki while she was in his beer bottle so she can unstone her subjects.
1: Yeah, maybe she can like import subjects from other realms, you know, to get her going somehow.
0: Uh, Subjects who really like statuary, maybe. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the Baldur the Brave miniseries, and I don't know, I have have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I would say it's definitely not as strong as the main Walter Simonson Thor run. I think there's a lot of fun stuff to recommend it, but like we touched on, there's also some stuff that's a little iffy.
1: It is, but at the end, it is nice to see some real growth from these characters, and it is a truly kind of tragic earned ending, which is effective. One of the things I like about
0: it is that while Carnella is perhaps manipulated by Balder, well I mean she's straight up manipulated by Balder, the growth that she has as a person, you know, becoming more understanding, becoming more compassionate, less selfish, that does work for me. Partially that's because she's had Balder around to sort of lead by example in that regard, but I kind of got the impression that's what she was always seeking and wanting to have him by her side. She wanted to almost learn to be a different person, to learn to be a better person.
1: Yeah, it's the little ends justifies the means to me, but she did have some authentic growth, and she does seem to find some comfort in that, some strength.
0: And so that's where we leave Balder the Brave. He's had his own miniseries, which I don't think I would have expected. I mean, he's not nearly as as interesting a god as, say, Thor or Sif or Odin or Frigga or even the Warriors 3, but... It's fun stuff, and we do have enough little goofy moments and enough talking to birds and shrinking down giants and such things that, uh, I'm glad we read it, and I'm glad we had a chance to cover it. Me too. So, that may be the story, but of course, that's not the full story. It couldn't possibly be without our... Recognitions of Merit! And Elizabeth, I think you're gonna start us off this time with... The crack doom Award! For the best sound effect.
1: Yes, and my sound effect was the... As the giant shrank. One, because it was kind of an amazing sound effect. It literally sounded like they were choking. But man, I had no idea that frost giants could shrink.
0: It kind of reminded me of the sound that, like, ice cubes make when you put them into your water and they have that sort of, like, crackling, groaning kind of sound.
1: Now I'm just picturing the letter whoever does these sound effects, like, doing that and trying to be like, okay, but what letters are those? <laughs> I
0: really want to know, like, who's responsible for different aspects of the sound effects. Who chooses how they're going to be spelled? Who chooses how they're going to look? What fonts they're going to use? How they're going to be positioned? Like, would that be Selby's some of the artist? Or John Workman, the letterer? Or even Walter Simonson, the writer, in his a scripting of the comic? Like, How did that work for this comic? How does that work for comics in general? Like, I know a lot about the craft of comics, as I know you do as well, but I don't know how that worked in Marvel in the 80s. Yeah,
1: I don't know then. I know now that some writers will say, you know, sound effect, this, sound effect, that. But I think letters do a lot more of the actual positioning and design of those. That is all in their hands. But here, you know, there's really no consistency between letterers or even within panels of different things here. So it's definitely not codified here. Next, Miles has Hell's Haberdashery, or Best Headgear.
0: Okay, so, obviously, if we hadn't already disqualified her because she kept winning, this would go to Carnilla. She has six amazing tiara, headgear, whatevers, just in the first, like, issue and a half of this miniseries before she gets captured. But, of course, she cannot win because she already has twice. So, I'm actually going to give it to... Balzer the Brave himself, we haven't talked a lot about his outfit, his sort of pink and gold armor, which is super rad, but that helmet is freaking awesome. He's got this sort of Magneto-esque purple headgear with a white H-shaped piece on the forehead that points sharply skyward and these wonderful little Viking horns, and these enormous golden curved plates to either side of the helmet with these sharp inward curving corners and holes that make them look kind of like birds facing each other, which is both appropriate and badass. Uh, you know, it's sort of nature-y. I gotta say, though, that helmet has to be so freaking heavy. I mean, if those are big metal
1: plates, that thing's gotta weigh like 50 pounds. I guess lifting boulders also gives you a really strong neck. I guess so, man.
0: I mean, I know (laughs) the Asgardians are all much stronger and tougher than normal human beings, so I guess they could all just dress like that. Maybe it's like how in Dungeons & Dragons, dwarves don't have to worry about encumbrance up to a certain level, like they just ignore it?
1: Yeah, I was just reading yesterday in the Marvel wiki, it said something like Asgardians' flesh and bone is like three times denser than, uh, than regular human flesh and bone, so there you have it.
0: I guess Guardians must be really heavy also. They must leave really deep footprints at the beach.
1: Yeah, well, that's why it's so easy for Agnar to read them. Ah, it all <laughs> comes together.
0: <laughs> I'm glad we figured this out. Yeah. That having been decided, let's move on to the Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award for the worthiest object in the story.
1: And that, of course, is the Sword of Frey. It is the whole reason Carnilla got invaded, presumably, which kicks off a big part of the story. And it was a capable MacGuffin throughout.
0: Also, it it fights on its own and it makes the wielder invincible. It kind of reminds me of the singing sword from that cartoon and probably also from, you know, actual like Arthurian mythology.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty good prize to get. I'm kind of glad that Agnar ended up with it. Yeah,
0: and I think he does actually keep it after the story, doesn't he?
1: He says, I mean, he does mention to Hogan that he doesn't really know if he's worthy because he hasn't actually had to use it yet. But Hogan gives him some encouragement that he's probably going to use it pretty well. Side note. Agnar doesn't really show up
0: much after Walter Simonson's run, and that's so sad because he's one of my favorite Thor characters. Like, I know he's not as flashy and doesn't have special powers, he's just like a normal everyman, or at least as much of an everyman as you can be if you're from freaking Vanaheim. But that was part of his appeal for me always. Like, I wish Jason Aaron would bring Agnar back because so far Jason Aaron has yet to disappoint me with his interpretation of every character in Thor. So let's get some Agnar going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, that seems like a lot of buildup to never then go forth with the character. Ah, what can you do? All right, we're gonna wrap things up with Miles' Most Metal Moment Award. Now,
0: not everything that's metal has to be longships burning or giant battles in which countless warriors die. Not everything has to be gods fighting in the heavens or demons rising up from the flames. So here, I'm gonna go as our most metal moment for Baldur and Agnar's amazing training montage 80s hair metal style with like the mealy- In the background, as they get super buff over a month, they don't sleep for the entire month, the narration tells us, they don't rest or sleep, that is damn impressive, maybe that has to do with having very dense flesh and leaving deep footprints on the beach, I don't know, but nonetheless, it's pretty awesome. They have weapons training, they have long runs on the beach, they have jumping from cliff to cliff. They, of course, lift giant boulders 330 times while shirtless, because, you know, shirts just get in the way of your boulder lifting. This is such a gloriously 80s, like, Top Gun version of masculine badassery. Is it ridiculous? Well, of course, but it's also a fair lot of fun, kind of like this miniseries.
1: Yeah, it is the best. It is amazing. And again, I just love picturing, like, the actors who play Marvel superheroes undergoing this process to prepare.
0: <laughs> Agreed. So there you have it, the Balder the Brave miniseries. Uh, thank you again, Indiegogo supporters, for um, helping us fund this episode so we could make it happen. Next time we'll be returning to Thor as a tragedy strikes and nothing is what it seems.
1: Curse and Malekith. Baldur versus Thor. And finally, Thor's beard. This has been, and shall ever be, The, the Lightning, Lightning and the Storm! <laughs> This has been, and shall ever be, The The Lightning lightning and the Storm!
0: The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast.
1: In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard,
0: Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there.
1: Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And
0: rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us.
1: We'll be back next week. Until then...
0: Fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard!